We continue our series in Matthew's Gospel, and we are in chapter 13, verses 24 through 43. Matthew chapter 13. Having seen last time the parable of the sower and the purpose of parables, we now move to the parable of the weeds or of the wheat and tares. Matthew 13, beginning with verse 24, but let us bow our heads briefly in prayer. Our Father, with what dignity we should read your word, how reverently we should pour over its pages and study every sentence, every word, every line. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you will enable us as we look at this text this morning to be led by the work of your Holy Spirit, that our hearts may be illumined, that we may see Christ here as he is found on every page of your inerrant word. And we pray that you will apply it to the hearts and lives of your people. We also pray, our Father, for those in our midst who may not know you at all, that they may see your people worship and within their hearts fall upon their faces and say, God is in this place. And hearing your word, may your spirit enable them to respond in faith. In faith toward Christ alone, who is the object of our faith and who alone can save us from our awful sins. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 13, beginning with verse 24. This is the word of God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now we saw as we looked last time at the parable of the sower, the reason that Jesus spoke in parables. It was in order to reveal and to conceal. We saw election and reprobation both happening through the parables of Jesus. There is a curse function. Jesus tells us plainly that there is a curse function, one to harden as well, of course, as the blessing of revealing. When the parables were spoken by Jesus, and he did not interpret them for the crowd, but only for his disciples, those who were hardened in heart became harder in their heart and unbelief. We know that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. No one, apart from the effectual drawing of the Holy Spirit, can understand the Word of God. And those who heard the parables, the unexplained parables of Jesus when they heard them and were unbelievers, grew darker in their unbelief and would unless the grace of God intervened. For believing disciples, however, the parables will bear fruit. And for the willfully blind, the darkness just becomes darker. Now we have this parable today, the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the parable of the weeds, if you will. Parables tell us the various ways in which people will respond to the gospel message. And this parable focuses upon unbelievers, those who will not believe the gospel message. No one can be neutral before this parable. No one can be neutral at any time that the word of God is preached. The word of God addresses you. You may think I'm being indifferent. No, you're not. If you are indifferent to the word, you're responding in unbelief. When the word of God is proclaimed, no one can be neutral. And certainly before the parables that Jesus spoke to the crowds, unexplained, they could not be neutral. It will affect you one way or another. First, then, we have the parable. It's very simple. There is a farmer sowing seed, and that seed is good seed. And the focus, however, is on the bad seed that is sown by the enemy. The good seed takes root, grows, it becomes wheat. It is sown by the landowner. Verse 27 tells us that it's his field. While they slept, the farmer's enemies sowed weeds among the wheat. Zizanion, the text says in the Greek, it's, it's darnel weed. It's like ryegrass that resembles wheat. It so resembles wheat that as it grows, it's hardly distinguishable until it matures. It intertwines with the wheat. Darnel grain also is poisonous. According to the parable, the enemy sowed this seed, and the goal was to ruin the competitor's crop, undoubtedly. Evidently, this happened enough that there was a Roman law against doing this. Later, it becomes distinguishable. An enemy did this, and so they come and they say, Didn't you sow good seed, master? The slaves asked, Do you want us then to separate them out? No, says the master, The plant roots are so intertwined that it would uproot the wheat if we separated them out now. Allow both to grow until the harvest, and when the harvest comes, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them up in bundles 
to burn them up. Only then will they be clearly distinguishable and can a separation take place. Gather the wheat, however, into the barn. Now that is the parable. Very simple. That's the first point. The parable. The second thing we see here is that he doesn't immediately move to an explanation of the parable to his disciples, but that he continues to deliver to the crowds two additional parables. And I want us to look at that secondly, the two parables that are intermediate. There are so many people who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can the church survive in such an environment as this? As a matter of fact, as we have been working our way through Matthew's gospel, the more Jesus ministers in Matthew, the more he's hated. And he has told us that's going to be true of his church, of his people as well. How then can the church survive in such an environment in which the gospel, the truth, the preaching of the gospel, God's people are hated in this world rather than loved by the world? Well, he tells two parables that are encouragements to the true people of God, encouragements to us as we continue on in the movement of kingdom growth. The first is the parable of the mustard seed. It's just two verses, verses 31 and 32. Look at it again. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but When it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So again, it's the theme of planting. The kingdom of heaven is like planting a grain of mustard seed, the garden herb whose seed is smaller than all the other garden seeds that were used in Israel. And as a garden plant, it can grow from this imperceptibly small seed into a significant tree. The kingdom of heaven, then, he is telling us, is now almost imperceptible. It's so very small in the world at large. Jesus is preaching. Very few people are believing. There are the 12 disciples. One of them is a devil, as we know. It's very, very small. The kingdom of heaven is almost imperceptible because it is so small. The beginnings are so incredibly small. And yet when we come to Revelation eleven fifteen, we are told the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Jesus shall reign where the sun doth its successive journeys run. And he says this small seed will grow into a significant tree so that the birds of the air will nest in it, which of course reflects Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So there's an inseparable connection between the small beginnings of the kingdom and this mature plant of the kingdom that will grow with this future glory that awaits us in the consummation of all things. That's the mustard seed. Then he tells another small little parable. It's found in verse 33. Let's read that again. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So it's the parable of the leaven. This woman saves a piece of the leavened dough from a prior batch and a prior risen batch. And she would use it in the new batch so that its leaven, that is its yeast, would ferment the new batch and make it rise as well. He's telling us that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Remember, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are interchangeable terms. He is saying to us, there are small things here, but those small things have great influence. The influence of the kingdom is greater than its size in the world. The power 
is the power of the Holy Spirit, ultimately, that blesses his word and grows it in the world. And there is power in the hiddenness, the hiddenness and the smallness of it all, just like this little bit of yeast that is put into this new batch, and it ultimately causes the entire batch to rise. So there's power in the hiddenness of gospel preaching in the small pockets of this world in which the world thinks nothing significant is happening. Remember in China, how after the missionaries were expelled and everyone thought, well, the the work of the church is going to collapse there, what happened? There was a leaven that had been planted there by the true preaching of the gospel that has to this day grown under the communist regime so that in China we have the largest expression of the church of Jesus Christ on the earth. It was just a little leaven that leavened the whole lump of dough. And he says to us in this passage that there is power in hiddenness. It's not newsworthy most of the time to the BBC or to NPR. It's happening right under their noses and right under our noses as well. And so the message to the people of God is don't be discouraged, especially with small things, because God will save his own. Now, he's not talking about the transformation of society. He's not saying the church needs to get involved in politics so that, so that through political changes we transform the world around us. That's not what he means at all. He means the spread of the doctrine of the gospel, the spread of salvation is going to take place despite what this world thinks about it all. Don't be discouraged. God will save his own people. His kingdom is going to grow You know, my mother used to say to me often as I was growing up, she would look at me and say, mighty oaks from tiny acorns grow. I don't know if that had something to do with my size or just what. But that's that's something of what Jesus is saying to us here in this little parable of the leaven. You know, I know faithful ministers of the gospel who are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the churches are burgeoning with people. They're faithful, the church is faithful, and that's the Holy Spirit's blessing. I know other ministers who are faithfully preaching the gospel and their churches are being faithful and there is imperceptible growth and sometimes there's shrinkage. That's the work of God and his sovereignty as well. God is the one who blesses one man's ministry in one way, who does not bless another man's ministry in another way, who increases the curse function of one man's ministry as the word is preached, the blessing in another place. This is all in the hands of a sovereign God. He is the one who grows his kingdom according to his own plan and his own way. I had a dear friend who died at age 42, who could preach rings around any preacher I've ever known, who never had what the world looking at it would have considered to be a successful ministry. I would imagine that the person he most influenced with the preaching of the gospel was me. Looking at his ministry, people would have thought, this is a complete and utter failure. My, could he preach the gospel of Christ. My, did he glorify God in his preaching. God didn't bless in perceptible ways at that time, his ministry. Why are we so obsessed by size? I mean in the evangelical church at large. Why are we obsessed with this question of size? Yes, we should pray for more converts. I do. We should pray that we grow in grace and in number. I do. That's because we care about the souls of lost sinners. That's not what I mean. 
I mean this emphasis that we have in the evangelical church in which we're focused upon numbers, it seems, for numbers' sake. Just this week I heard a news item about a megachurch that if I mentioned you know, you know the church that I was talking about. It has 45,000 members. Now, how can you shepherd 45,000 people? But this church, this one church, has 45,000 members. But let me tell you something, my friend. If the members of that church believe what is preached in the pulpit of that place, well, actually, they don't have a pulpit preached on the stage, if they actually believe what is preached by that man, every one of his members is lost. Every one of them. I don't care if there are 45,000 people. They're lost if they believe what is preached. You see what he is saying to us here? You should be encouraged because it is in the hands of a sovereign God to grow the tree. It is in the hands of a sovereign God to take the leaven and to spread his kingdom. It's his sovereign will. Be encouraged. You just be faithful. Now we come to the third thing. The third thing. And that is the explanation of the parable with which we began. The parable of the wheat and tares or of the weeds. Now... As we come to this, Matthew reminds us that Jesus' parables identify his messianic call. You see verse 35, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And so like Asaph the seer and others that we find in the Psalms, we find that Jesus is saying, I'm revealing those things that were formerly hidden. This is the passage we read in our Old Testament reading that is quoted here. This references Jesus, the Messiah. One of the reasons you know he's the Messiah is because he speaks in parables. That's what he's saying to us in this passage. Jesus then reveals those things formerly hidden. The righteous act of God revealed in Christ's teaching and his cross and his resurrection. These were things spoken more darkly and hidden in the Old Testament passages. Revealed there but now no longer concealed because Jesus makes them plain. So they come to him, these disciples, and they say, explain to us the parable. And the emphasis, remember, is on the tares and not on the wheat. And it's a parable about judgment. Why would the wicked weeds be allowed to coexist with the wheat? That must be the question that is asked by the disciples. Why would this be? What did it all mean? And so Jesus explains the parable, a very simple explanation. The Son of Man sows the good seed. He sows in his own field, and verse 38 tells us that the field is the world. Now that's important because every time I've heard this passage preached in my own personal history, it has been preached as the church, wheat and tares in the church. Now there's truth there, but that's not what he says. He says it's the world, the world, not the church. And so the parable is about the church in the world, not the world in the church. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The devil has sown these tares. But Jesus says, harvest is coming, the judgment is coming at the end of the age. And the reapers will be the angels who will gather up the tares to be burned in the fire. And if you remember last week's sermon about the angels, you know they are powerful beings. And in that day, you can be as strong as Atlas, but you will not get away from these these reapers who will cast the tares into the fire. 
Verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers, which is a reference to the book of Zephaniah. Chapter 1, verse 3, I will sweep away man and beast, I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble of the wicked, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord, or the stumbling blocks, I will sweep away. It's a reference to Zephaniah, that great book about judgment. So it shall be, says Jesus, In the end of the age, don't apply the sickle yet. There's always the temptation to want to apply the sickle. You remember in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, when the Samaritan village rejected Jesus, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They wanted to bring judgment then and there. They wanted to apply the reaping then and there. And Jesus rebukes them for it. Don't apply the sickle yet. But Jesus says the day is coming in which those who are and who are not the Lord's, it will be totally evident. Now that's the parable. It's explained by Jesus very clearly. There's nothing difficult here for you to understand, is there? I want to apply it. It could be applied in a lot of ways. I want to apply it in four ways. This is your fourth point, applying the parable of the weeds. First application is this. Now is the time for patience. Now is the time for the church, for believers, to be patient. Patient, patient. Because the field is the world and wheat and tares grow together and the Lord is in no hurry to separate them. The church has no right to apply the sword. Every time that has happened in the history of the church, the church has erred and brought great damage. We are not called as a church to bring ultimate judgment on the world. The church is called to evangelize. We are called to get the gospel out. To be sure that the word of God is truly preached from our pulpits, truly preached by our missionaries, taken to our friends and neighbors and co-workers by our own lives, and ultimately, yes, by our words. Men can't be saved from sin if they don't hear the gospel. They need to see it in your life, but they also need to hear it from your lips. And until Jesus returns, the gospel goes out, and we are to say to sinners, come to faith in Jesus. He who believes in Christ, who died for sinners like you and me, will be saved. That's the message that we are to take into the world around us. And that message that goes out, let me tell you, is not simply an invitation. It is a command. He commands all men everywhere to repent. And you reject it at your own peril. But again, the results are in the hands of God. We are called to be faithful in this, but the results are in God's hands. Only the Holy Spirit can apply the word of the cross. Now, in this era, between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ, is the time of patience. Patient, faithful, obedience to the Great Commission, to the command to evangelize, to the support of our missions. 
time of patience. But secondly, second application, now is the time of patience, but the end will come. People laugh at that. They laughed in Jesus' day. They laughed when Peter proclaimed it. They scoffed, they mocked at the thought of the return of Christ, the end of the world. Oh, how they laughed, just as they laughed when God sent the deluge and sent the flood upon the earth. But God did it, and he will bring an end to the world. Verses 41 and 42, let's read them. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, these are the stumbling blocks, and all lawbreakers... And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the backdrop to this is Daniel the seventh chapter. In which we read about this son of man. I saw in the night visions, we read in Daniel 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. A little later it says, The Ancient of Days came, and the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Earlier it says... A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now that's the passage that is in Jesus' mind that is reflected in the language of these verses 41 and 42. And he says, I am that son of man standing before the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. I am the one who will bring judgment on the earth. There in Daniel, we have this universal sovereign in the context of judgment, and we have noted in Matthew, especially the Sermon on the Mount, this strange note of authority from Jesus. Jesus says, I will judge the living and the dead. I will judge the world, says Jesus. That's a claim to deity. He's saying, I'm God, become man. And I will judge the world. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 that Jesus will return in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. And so here in these verses we have the wrath of God on sin. That God is a holy God, that he hates sin, that he will bring his wrath and judgment upon sinners. We have in verse 42 the fire of hell, already referenced in Matthew, will be referenced again in Matthew, referenced in Mark, referenced in Revelation in many places, the wrath of God, the fire of hell, and we have the awful punishment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now we live in a day in which in the evangelical church, the whole truth of hell, the doctrine of hell, is not only kept in the backdrop but it's being overtly denied. We have this Rob Bell book, that silly book, that's being taken so seriously by people, in which he denies this literal hell and denies all of these things. It's just ridiculous, exegetically ridiculous, theologically ridiculous. We have another theologian saying God doesn't send men to hell. He does. He says he does. 
He will send the wicked to hell. God will sustain their beings there. God will pour his wrath into their consciences forever. And so if we eliminate hell from the church's thought and vocabulary, let me tell you what will happen. If you eliminate hell from the church's thought and vocabulary, you will eliminate the cross from the church's thought and vocabulary. If you eliminate hell from the church's thought and vocabulary, you eliminate atonement from the church's thought and vocabulary because that's what the cross is. Jesus taking the place of his people on a cross and the wrath of Almighty God being poured out upon him, bearing the hell of his people. And Jesus says, now's the time for patience, but the end will come. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawlessness and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is lowly Jesus, meek and mild, speaking. Third application. Jesus focuses, yes, on the wicked, on the judgment, but there's a contrast between the believer and the unbeliever at the end of the age. We find it in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So he will gather the wheat in his barn, and the righteous will shine like the sun, which is another reference to Daniel, by the way. Daniel chapter 12, in which we read, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And Jesus references that here in this passage. Angels will separate out the wicked, but angels also will separate out the righteous because he tells us, In Matthew 24, verse 31, He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so we have a contrast. The wicked, fire, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Those who know Christ, shining like the sun. Weep gathered in the barn of your heavenly Father. In your Father's kingdom. Thank God for that. Fourth application. And I think the way I want to put this application is just by using Jesus' words here at the end. He who has ears, let him hear. Only the Spirit can give you ears to hear. Only the work of the Holy Spirit can enable anyone to hear. What are we to hear? And I'm especially thinking about those who may be among us today who don't know Christ. Well, you are to hear that God is holy and that we are in trouble. God is holy and we are under his condemnation and wrath and we need a savior. Judgment is coming. We need a savior. Now, if you are an unbeliever in Christ... One of the things I know about you is what I know of myself in my, in my unconverted state. And I know about every sinner. You have a low view of God. 
You adjust your view of God to what you want to do in life. You adjust your view of God to how you want to view him. You have a very low view of God. Let me tell you, God is indebted to no man. He's absolutely holy, and he doesn't stand for election. You can't say of God, I don't like that he says this, and so I'm just going to vote him out of office. God doesn't stand for election. He reveals in his word what is true. And so look at the theme of the text. Do you see your need? Because where there is no need of the Savior, a Savior is not sought. Do you see God's holiness? Do you see that in order to save, God brings us low in our guilt? Do you have saving faith or just a religious profession? Have you ever been convinced of sin? Some people think themselves saved who've never been lost. I mean, they don't know they're lost. They think themselves saved and they've never acknowledged that they're sinners. They've never dealt with this great issue of guilt that would send them to hell and condemn them forever and ever and ever. Have you ever been convinced of your sin? Have you ever seen yourself as guilty? Have you ever seen the inflexibility and holiness of the law of God and that your works are worthless in the presence of such a God and such a law? Have you ever seen your heart black and putrid in need of grace? Have you ever seen God's absolute purity and contrasted yourself with that purity? Do you have a personal saving union with Jesus Christ? Very few people know it. Do you have a personal saving union with Jesus Christ? The text says the wrath of God is coming. There is a coming judgment. Wrath is what sent Jesus Christ to a cross. He shed his blood bearing the wrath of his people. Only the blood of Christ can remove our guilt. Only if guilt is washed away in Jesus' blood are you ready to stand in the day of judgment. Only if Christ saves you will it be true that all the devils in hell cannot take it away. Christ, the Holy Son of Man of Daniel 7 says, I am going to bring judgment. That being the case, if you are outside of Christ, you had better stack arms. Lay down the weapons of your warfare because you're going to lose. Now we hear in pulpits around the land, and I grew up with this. You know, God has done everything he possibly can to save you. Now it's up to you. Why should, why should you seek help from a God who's done all that he can and leaves it up to you, let me ask? Such a God cannot help you. Such a God is not the God of the Bible. Such a God cannot save you. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. You are to come to him and sue for mercy. Come to him for mercy. Seek his grace. May the Spirit enable you. The gospel is what God does for us, not what we do for God. And so the theme is very, very stark in this passage. The theme is clear. The authority is right here in the text. And we, none of us, can walk away neutrally.
We are either saved or we are lost. And so which is true of you? And so don't say, well, yeah, the judgment's coming and therefore I'm going to work harder. I'm just going to be a better person and then I can stand before him on the day of judgment. You will not. You cannot. Your works will not avail. Justification, our our standing before God in the righteousness of Christ, justification is not by a working faith. Justification is by faith that does no work whatsoever. Working faith comes later in sanctification in the Christian life. Justification is not by a working faith. Justification is by faith that does no work, but simply receives and relies totally on Christ alone. And that's the call of the gospel to you, to rely upon Christ alone. Because the only way a sinner can stand in the judgment is dressed in the legal righteousness of Jesus Christ, received by faith alone, apart from any work on your part whatsoever. Nothing, 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 nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. In the language of Joseph Hart, the hymn writer, But let our debts be what they may, however great or small, as soon as we have not to pay, our Lord forgives us all. Tis perfect poverty alone that sets the soul at large. While we can call one might our own, we have no full discharge. And so the final point, he who has ears, let him hear. And it is our prayer that the Lord will open ears this morning. And those whose ears are opened that we may live with gratitude for what he has done, this great Savior, in delivering us from condemnation and the wrath of God that is surely coming. Amen.